This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Should public universities in this state be able to ban whomever they want from campus? That's the question the American Civil Liberties Union of Colorado wants answered in court. The group has filed a lawsuit that accuses Adams State University in Alamosa in southern Colorado of wrongfully banning a controversial blogger. Denver attorney Reed Newrider represents the ACLU and spoke with Nathan Heffel. Welcome to the program. Oh, I'm very glad to be here, Nathan. We asked officials from Adams State to join the conversation. They declined. I do have a statement from them. We'll get to that in a minute. But first, this involves a former assistant professor of mass communication at the university, uh, Danny Ladani. He's also a filmmaker and on campus for a festival there each year. Your complaint in federal court says problems for Ladani began last fall. He wrote articles critical of the school's administrators on a blog. That's right. He was actually an adjunct professor initially and then a visiting professor. Uh, He applied for a full-time job, was not given that job. He challenged the university in not receiving the job. But then he started uh, blogging and and putting up on his website some critical articles about it. And two days after October 12th, when he put up some critical articles, he received a ban order banning him from the campus. So two days after Ladani published his blog post, your suit says the campus chief of police banned him from campus by coming to his house. Coming to his home and serving him with a persona non grata order. And so he was not welcome on campus anymore and threatened with arrest if he showed Ladani argues that he has a right to be on campus, but I want to get to some of the campus's concerns. We asked the university if its president, Beverly McClure, uh, would join us today. They declined that invitation. However, the university shared a letter about Ladani written by campus police chief Paul uh, Grahowski. It was sent to students, faculty and staff and raises the specter that Ladani could be a threat. It says he, quote, made numerous members of faculty and staff uncomfortable by his actions, words, and behaviors. It notes that he was passed over for a job he wanted and was, quote, disruptive after that. And it says he had harassed the family of an administrator on social media sites. How do you address all of that concern? In two ways. First off, that's the kind of detail that was then published about Mr. Ladoni that he never had an opportunity to respond to. And we still don't know what the specific allegations of harassment, disruptive behavior are, which gets to the fundamental due process concerns we have and why this is important to the ACLU. If you're going to take action against somebody, if someone really has threatened a campus, yes, then it should be appropriate to ban them. But as the Colorado Supreme Court said in 1973, if you're going to ban someone, a member of the public from a public university campus, they're entitled to notice and an opportunity to be heard, to explain these alleged allegations. Mr. Ladoni has never been given an opportunity. But the campus police chief is saying his decision is, quote, based on the needs and safety of the ASU community, which clearly outweighs the special interests of the singular. That's his quote. If a campus is concerned about safety, particularly in the post-Columbine era, shouldn't officials be able to ban someone? The answer to that is in the same way that you can get a protective order from a court. If you're legitimately fearful of a threat, you go to a judge, you lay out the allegations, and the person has an opportunity to explain or challenge that order. You cannot, especially under the circumstances here where Mr. Ladoni is a vocal critic of the Adams State University administration, ban them, not give them the explanation, and then go out and publicly besmirch their reputation, which is what happened here. So to be clear, you're saying there's a process and the university failed to follow that. 
Absolutely. There's a process, and the process was actually laid out in two places. One, it was laid out in the 1973 Watson case by the Colorado Supreme Court, where they said, if you're going to ban someone, you need to give them notice and an opportunity to be heard, if at all reasonable before the ban. And that same principle was in the Adams State University Code of Conduct, which existed at the time when he was banned that said you're entitled to reasonable notice and a hearing before any ban. And that didn't happen here. I do have to mention that another point raised in the police chief's letter is that Ladani created a controversial video game that, as the police chief puts it in his letter, quote, recreates the horror of the Columbine High School shooting massacre. Uh, It's called Super Columbine Massacre RPG. I I want to note, however, that the video game came out way before Ladani was hired for three years as an adjunct instructor and then another year, as you said, as a visiting assistant professor. Still, that's listed as a safety concern. What is your response to that? Well, number one, Mr. Ladani made this video game in 2005 or thereabouts in response in part to the allegation that violent video games may have caused mass shootings. It was an academic exercise. He then did a documentary film about it where he discusses why he made the video game, what it was about. That was done several years, five years before he was ever hired as a professor at Adams State University. And for them to raise something that happened 10 years ago now, saying that somehow he's a threat, really is beyond belief. But it also gets to the due process question. If that's really the reason why he's being banned or part of the reason, he should have had an opportunity, number one, to know that and to respond to it in a hearing where he can confront the allegations against him. Now, are there differences between, let's say, a high school or an elementary school in the same situation as opposed to a university? Are there different um, levels of, of scrutiny for something like this? Well, actually, I if you're a high school student, for example, or a high school teacher and action is taken against you, there are built-in protections. There are due process protections. You typically have a hearing in front of an administrator. The nature and form of the hearing that you're entitled to changes depending on the offense. If you're being suspended, it might be one thing. If you're accused of a criminal act, it's another. But in this instance, the Supreme Court of Colorado said you're entitled to reasonable notice and an opportunity to be heard, and that didn't happen here. Are there also free speech issues at stake here? There are absolutely free speech issues at stake. We allege in our complaint that Mr. Ladoni, the actions against Mr. Ladoni were in part taken in retaliation for his public criticism of the administration and its president. The president of the university, but Ms. Beverly McClure, in fact, says that she interprets some of his blog posts as harassment. And that's why she took the action that she did. In that sense, that is retaliation for First Amendment protected activity. And that's another reason why the ACLU is concerned here. You shouldn't be – think of the chilling effect if individuals are going to lose rights that any member of the public has because they are seen to be critical of an administration at a public university. They are public servants and are entitled to be criticized just like any other politician or public servant. So what is the next step? Where do you go from here? We've asked the court to issue a preliminary injunction to allow Mr. Ladoni to be back on campus pending a full trial in this matter because his rights are being denied, his reputation's besmirched, and he hasn't had an opportunity to clear his name in a public hearing. Thanks for being here. I'm happy to be here. Reed Newrider is an attorney for the ACLU of Colorado in a case against Adams State University. He spoke with Nathan Heffel. Let's get your feedback now on my interview with Sue Klebold in Loud and Clear. 
Klebold's son Dylan was one of the masterminds of the attack on Columbine High School, in which 13 were murdered and many others wounded in 1999. In her new book, A Mother's Reckoning, Klebold reflects on what she might have done differently as a parent. If I had acknowledged his feelings and gave him an opportunity to express himself without trying to help, I think it might have opened his ability to communicate. I think the most important thing parents can do is to shut up and listen. Upon hearing that, Dennis Poffenroth of Castle Pines emailed us. I was disturbed that she still looks back at times when she could have been a better mother. It's natural for a mother to think that way. I hope she will eventually forgive herself. Heather Stratton-Williams of Boulder writes, My heart breaks all over again to hear this interview, now that I'm the mom of a teen. Listeners largely reached out in support of Sue Klebold. This call came in from Pamela Munstock of Littleton. How horrific and absolutely life-shattering it must have been for Mrs. Kle- for the, you know everyone involved. I'm so pleased that she's written the book, and but I was so pleased that you interviewed her. Sean Brendier of Denver wrote on the CPR News Facebook page, I am amazed at the strength of this woman. I admire that she is willing to talk through something she has kept hidden for so long. For people to judge her is just about the crappiest thing a person can do. She has a story that is valid and worth letting the world know. For Anne Haggard of Centennial, this portion of the interview stood out. Have you heard from the parents of the Aurora Theater Shooter? You know, I am, I'm going to protect the privacy of all the people that I have talked to by not answering that question. Um, I have spoken with quite a few uh, families uh, who have a family member who has done something horrible. Haggard writes on Facebook, knowing that she has reached out and that they have reached out to her is, in my opinion, just one mark of a very brave and selfless human being. So many carry in their hearts the heavy toll of losses from that day. I wish for all of them, and to Sue Klebold, only peace. But Christine Schock took to Twitter to tell us, quote, I'm turning off the radio. I don't want to hear Sue Klebold's pity party. Tell us what keeps you listening and what makes you tune out. Your feedback is welcome by email. Click contact at the top of cprnews.org. You can also comment at the bottom of story pages there or hit us up on social media, CPR News on Facebook and at Colorado Matters on Twitter. We are especially interested in how the victims of the attack and the families of victims feel about Sue Klebold's book, and we'll bring you their thoughts next week. This is Colorado Public Radio. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It took sculptor Gary Staub years to get access to one of the world's scientific treasures, a 5,000-year-old mummy discovered on an Italian glacier. Finally, Staub got permission to study up close what might just be the most studied human being in history. Staub is a paleo sculptor, and his job was to recreate the mummy named Utsi, This is the subject of a Nova documentary tonight on PBS. You may have seen some of Staub's sculptures at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science in the Prehistoric Journey exhibit. And uh, Gary, welcome to the program. Nice to be with you. So Utsi was found in the Utsal Alps of Italy, hence his name. Uh, This is a natural mummy, so not intentionally preserved by human beings. Uh, You know, thinking like King Tut there. Um, Why is this mummy in particular so alluring to you in particular? 
He's got a fantastic story. Uh, it's almost a perfect story in, in so many ways because, one, it's a murder mystery. We know he was shot with an arrow in the shoulder, and um, which it leaves a lot of the facts are, are left up to the imagination. Um, we can't. We can fill in a lot of his story by think by the forensics by looking at the way he died, uh, the methods um, uh, that the his assailants used against him. But we can't. We don't know his entire story. So I think that's what makes it a really enthralling. Uh, subject for for many people and and myself included that it is indeed a, a murder mystery. Um, geneticists were able to determine that he likely had brown eyes. Was about five two, one hundred and ten pounds. He was found with a copper axe, a stone knife, uh, relatively advanced shoes, a quiver of arrows, leather leggings, and potentially uh, medicinal mushrooms. Um, it really is amazing the condition not only of the tools and supplies that this mummy was found with, but the condition of the the mummy itself. Uh, can you describe? Right. Can you describe what Utsi looks like? Sure. Um, so he's he is the rarest of the rare in that natural mummies, um, in particular wet mummies, don't come along very often. So. Uh, it leaves us a, a just an absolute treasure trove of information, biologically speaking, about him. So, um, if you were to walk up to to Utsi um, today, you would see a five foot two, uh, slightly built man with very strong legs, sort of a lightly muscled upper body, and uh, and with uh, with brown hair and and brown eyes. So, uh, he has. All of the things that uh, that he was found with, you know, add so much richness to his story. It's it's a it's a it's a, a fun thing to think about how he uh, how you may have you know you could realize him walking across a mountainside. You called him a wet mummy, and he looks a bit like oh I don't know, kind of congealed brown jello. Would you say that's that's accurate? You've seen him uh, up close. I've only seen him on the screen. Sure. It, um, his preservation is pretty complex in that uh, he actually was covered initially when he was murdered, covered with snow and then uh, and then with ice. And then that that um, snow and ice receded numerous times. And so he's been scavenged by animals. Um, and so you see some of the things that you see on his body um, are damaged by animals Um um, but his his body is has dried out. Some of the soft tissues have have been reduced or shrunken, and so you see a very thin uh, a thin body wrap that wraps closely to the skeleton. But you also get a very good idea of the soft tissues that covered it, because a lot of the soft tissues um, do have uh, do have uh, are preserved on on the mummy. So lots of scientists want to study Utsi, but he's obviously fragile, and you can't just let anyone in to see him. Your mission was to create an exact replica of this mummy, but you could only spend 30 minutes. Why was that? He has a very unique uh, situation in that he can't be thought out for any length of time whatsoever, and so... That length of that duration of time is is purely set up uh, so that there's no degradation. We 
put scrubs on so that we wouldn't introduce our DNA um, to the mummy, uh, which would, you know, very uh, quickly confuse future researchers. So um, it's uh, it, it's a really unique challenge to uh, to to work on him, and um, it's it's been a it's been a really amazing amazing journey. But with the thirty minutes um, is purely set up for the preservation of the mummy and the safety of the mummy. We're speaking with paleo sculptor Gary Staub. Some of his work is at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, where he's also a research associate. And Staub is featured in the Nova documentary tonight, Iceman Reborn. It's about the quest to create a replica, essentially, of Utsi, this 5,000-year-old natural mummy. And how do you go about creating a replica? Is this a 3D printing type thing? Yeah, one of the the beautiful things is that he's he is so heavily studied. With a lot of medical scans have been done of his body, and so we were able to take that data, that three D digital data, and create a three dimensional print from that. One of the challenges of that was that because of the pose he died in, they actually could not fit his entire body into the scanner. So his hands were not scanned, and about six centimeter section. A six centimeter section of his trunk were not uh, included in the scan data, so that had to be uh, uh, modeled on the computer. And I, when I went into the freezer, I was able to capture that data uh, just by using high resolution photographs and taking measurements, and then sculpt those to, and then create um, those elements and add them onto the digital print. So the digital print has fantastic volumes. It it really captures the shape of the mummy very, very well. But the surface detail is only as good as the as the medical scan. So um, my job as a sculptor is to go in there and actually put in all of the that that skin pore detail that um, that was not included on the three dimensional print. You had to replicate tattoos that are all over Utsi. And it may come as a surprise to some that Stone Age, you know, creatures, uh, people, uh, featured tattoos. Um, I guess you got to re- you got to recreate the process by which he would have gotten them using, yes, pigskin. <laughs> so yeah, that was a really interesting day in the studio. We had uh, uh, we had Aaron um, uh, Dieter Wolf from. Uh, uh, he who's an, an archaeologist who essentially specializes in the study of ancient tattooing, uh, come to the, my studio and we, we tried to replicate how Utsi's tattoos were made. And it was a really fun and interesting day. I learned an immense amount. And that's, I think, one, one of the best parts of my job is that I, I get to interact with fantastic scientists and learn what they know um, and roll that into a model that can be used for a museum display. So where is your recreation of Utsi now and how did it turn out? Well, we've, I actually ended up making three replicas. Mm. So the first is on display at the Dolan DNA Learning Center in Cold Spring Harbor, New York. Uh, the second is in Bolzano, Italy at the museum where Uzi is housed. And the third will be on display at a yet-to-be-determined venue in New York. So um, the, uh, the one of the head scientists, Albert Zink, um, was flown to my, my studio just north of Kansas City. And uh, I was 
absolutely uh, horrified, to be honest, uh, that he was coming because he's spent decades uh, literally studying this mummy. And so I was very nervous to, to uh, see his reaction to it. But he seemed to be uh, very pleased with it. So I was, I was very happy after that day was over. Oh. Just briefly, how did you get into be, being a paleo sculptor? I've always enjoyed biology and and uh, animals in general, and uh, it just found my way into a museum uh, in a drawing class in college, and had the epiphany that people actually have to build exhibits for a living, um, that that was a potential job, and I, I chased that dream um, <laughs> very uh, myopically. After that, I, I really uh, focused on that as a, as my career path, and then I landed some nice internships at the Smithsonian and at the British Museum uh, after that. And uh, it was, a, it was a, a very, very, very straight path for me. And you don't uh, just sculpt bipeds. You do, you do dinosaurs as well. I like to joke that I, I specialize in being a generalist because all of these things complement each other. So if you have to produce a hominid, if you have to do, uh, you know, an Ice Age mammal, if you have to uh, sculpt, sculpt an early amphibian. All of these things have correlates, and there's things there are parallels. They may be sort of, uh, they may be tangents from each other, but there definitely are correlations in in all living things. So uh, they they complement each other very well. Gary Staub is a paleo sculptor. He's based in Kansas City. Some of his sculptures are at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, where he's also a research associate. And he's featured in tonight's Nova documentary, Iceman Reborn, which airs on PBS. When we come back, a modern one-room schoolhouse and the story of DeBeck, Colorado, the only town in Mesa County that allows for recreational pot shops. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. What's the right school for my child? That's a question lots of parents stress over. But how many decide to start their own school when they don't find what they're looking for? CPR's education reporter Jenny Brundine has the story of one, one woman who did. When we think about a one-room schoolhouse, we see an old wooden school on a prairie in the 1800s, maybe with Laura Ingalls Wilder and her sister Mary inside. Fast forward to 2016, and the one-room schoolhouse is on Perry Street in Denver's Highlands neighborhood. That way, we can actually walk through the hole in the wall, which my daughter and I... This modest duplex is undergoing a massive renovation to become a little school that will eventually be home to 24 kindergarten through fifth graders. The Highlands Micro School is the brainchild of Anne Wintemute. She's leading a tour of prospective parents. A year ago, Wintemute was checking out schools for her oldest daughter. But she says she'd always leave feeling each school didn't meet the environment she believed was vital. That the child should be at the center of the education. And more specifically, that school is a process of living. It's not a preparation for life. Wintemute says she came to that conclusion after poring over all the research and theories out there on how children learn best. What happened next is probably a leap most of us wouldn't make. But Wintemute grew up with a rancher father. He told her this. If we saw something that needed to be different, that wasn't working, then to step up and make that happen. And that's how the Highland Micro School was born. Nobody's counting, but it's estimated there are no more than a few dozen microschools in the country. 
Most avoid standardized testing and a fixed curriculum, and they allow for something that makes a lot of sense to Wintemute. Classes with mixed ages. It provides opportunities for leadership. It reduces competition because there's an expectation that everyone will be in different places. You're not artificially segregating people by their date of manufacture. Wintemute points to research that shows mixed-age classrooms allow older kids to cement their learning by teaching others, while the younger kids get an early grasp of concepts they'll learn in more detail down the road. At the core of the microschool philosophy are ideas that date back more than a century to the progressive education movement, learning by doing, collaborating, and problem-solving. And as Wintemute tells the parents on the tour, a lot of that can happen outside. And in there, it's tools. It's wood for the kids to build with. It's ropes for them to tie twigs together. And Wintemute wanted the school to be smack dab in the middle of a neighborhood. She says kids can study a neighbor's fish-raising pond, or they can grow vegetables for a local restaurant. There'd be a lot of discourse, a lot of... Susan Culkin will be the school's sole teacher. She says each child's curiosity and learning style will drive the curriculum. What are our curiosities? What are our wonders? What are the resources that we might need to check into? Where are we going to find those? What can we use? What's not working for us? Why? But what if the student isn't interested in essentials like reading or math? Parent Susanna Hurd is on the tour. It's something she's wondering. She says her son is excited about science and building stuff. He could build things all day long. He has no interest in writing. He's not so into Culkin and Wintemute believe a microschool's philosophy will help Hurd's son learn to write by connecting writing to the areas he's passionate about. Still, Wintemute says there's no research on microschools yet that shows if their approach is successful. On today's tour, she also acknowledges that a large school can offer things that a microschool can't. You can have a school nurse, and that's important for a community that maybe their students don't have access to health care, um, to on-site school psychologists, special learning difference interventionists. Those are not things that we would have here. So Public schools are also free. Highlands Microschool is roughly $11,000 a year. But even for parents who can afford that extra expense, the decision isn't simple. Parents today are operating in an environment swirling with facts and figures and analyses about which are the best schools. And that's usually based on statistics about test scores. When parents ask Wintemute questions about how to evaluate a school, she has them do this exercise. I give them a piece of paper and a pencil. And I say, write down the words you would like people to use to describe your adult child. She says no one writes, I want them to be rich. I want them to have a perfect SAT score and go to Harvard. Instead, she says they write down words like fulfilled, passionate. We want them to be lifelong learners. Someone who can make good choices. Wintemute asks the parents, when they walk into a school, does it foster the values they wrote on their piece of paper? The Highland Micro School opens for its first semester on Perry Street this August. I'm Jenny Brendine, Colorado Public Radio News. Debeck, Colorado is a wild horse town. Mustangs roam nearby and have traditionally drawn the only visitors. Now Debeck has a new popular attraction pot shops. It has the only recreational marijuana sales in Mesa County and the closest shops to Colorado's western border on I-70. Town Administrator Lance Stewart is seeing DeBeck reap the benefits, and he's on the phone with us. Hi, Lance. 
Hello, Ryan. Thanks for checking in with us. Absolutely. Paint us a quick picture of your town, will you, which has about 500 people. Yes, uh, I can tell you that Debec is a wonderful place uh, to live and raise a family. Our school district is uh, one of the best in the area, and they're actually in the process of putting the final touches on uh, the plans for a brand-new elementary and middle school campus, which will be built uh, this next year. As you know, the community sits next to the interstate and uh, on the Colorado River, which provides a lot of recreational opportunities. And, of course, the wild horses that roam the ranges to the west of us still provide for a lot of our tourism uh, base that comes through the community. And more recently, um, those folks have also found that the trails that have been created by the oil and gas industry during the last boom uh, work very well for motorized uh, recreational use as well as mountain biking. Well, how did this town, which I understand is populated by many ranchers, retirees, uh, oil field roughnecks, how did it turn into a marijuana oasis in western Colorado? Well, you're right about the the history. Back in 1880, it was there were approximately 31 ranches in the valley, and this was their economic hub. Oil was um, discovered in 1902, and then oil shale actually in 1918. And as you know. Western Colorado has suffered the swings of the energy cycle ever since. More or less out of desperation, I believe, um, in 2014, the town board uh, decided to go down the road to uh, legalize the sale and production, uh, growth, etc., of marijuana in the area, primarily as a way to offset lost revenues from the oil and gas industry, And I have to tell you that um, now being into it for one year, of which, frankly, I'm only about four months of that period of time here that I've been in Debec, the revenue stream has just basically replaced that that was lost in the last couple of years from the mineral lease taxes that the community used to get. How many marijuana shops are in Debec? Presently, we have two that are in operation and two licenses uh, for uh, enterprises that still have not um, gotten their businesses up and running. And then we have a total of five licenses available for grow-type uh, facilities, and none of those are currently active but are in the process of building at this point in time, and one of those licenses is still available. So what kind of money are we talking about in terms of revenue to Debec? Well, I can tell you the pie-in-the-sky estimates were in the millions that would come into the town through their um, small 5% uh, excise tax. But the record shows that for 2014 was just over $300,000, and we are projecting for 2014 primarily off of um, revenues from the sales of marijuana products to be about 400000 So we're being fairly conservative in that estimate. The vote, which I'll note happened on April Fool's Day, I believe, of 2014, uh, passed 69 to 65. Was it controversial? Well, as you know, all good things usually happen on April Fool's Day. (laughs) And that was the case here as well. And yes, it has been quite a contentious um, situation for the community, at least up until the time of the vote. I have seen a softening in that 
situation uh, since that point in time, especially since we have two of our businesses up and running that have dispelled a lot of the rumors that came along during the you know the course of the election, and also there has been really no physical um, criteria that has you know shown that we're going to be experiencing any adverse impacts from this industry here, at least at this point in time. So you're not seeing an increase in crime or something like that? No, we have honestly not seen any uptick in crime here uh, due to the sales of marijuana. We have not seen, uh, as folks said, a lot of deadbeats hanging around on the corners or in the community park smoking pot. Nothing of that nature has occurred. Most of the people that we have seen or I've witnessed personally um, are upstanding individuals. They walk into the establishments, they make their purchases, and down the road they go for the most part. Well, let's talk about what this revenue means for Debec and um, improvements perhaps in the community. I mean, are you able to fill more potholes or what? Well, yeah, um, so to speak. Yes, um, the biggest advantage has been, as I said, to replace some of the lost revenue stream they've had. And if once the grow facilities get into production, we do see increasing revenues, it'll be a lifeblood for the community that they can, for once in their history, be able to actually start infrastructure replacement programs uh, for their streets, curb and gutters, water lines, sewer lines, uh, settling ponds at the sewer plant need to be uh, relined. And all of these, you know, are all million and multi-million dollar types of projects. And kind of on the softer side, uh, we're looking forward through a strategic plan that we're doing right now to hopefully be able to set up um, a program like a scholarship program for the high school. Um, There is the potential to, you know, for many years into the future, as long as the industry stays healthy, to provide uh, graduating seniors with some level of um, financial assistance. Uh, we're also looking at a beautification program so that the entryway into Debec actually stands out and people will notice that there is a community over here. And then the wild horses as well, we want to take advantage of them and continue to promote that through a new website and promotional activities uh, to bring people into the community and maybe have even more than just one festival each year that attracts uh, tourists to the area. I understand you have put new linoleum in at the community center, a new healing and heating and uh, cooling system there. Do you think that this could attract other non-pot-related businesses into town? We're hoping that this new form of agriculture may attract other types of agricultural interests that either are involved in hydroponic farming or something of that nature once they see the new innovations that will be going into the greenhouses here. Uh, So that is a hope. I have also had um, one contact so far from a hotelier um, that uh, owns a chain of hotels in the southwest that is considering a location here. Um, We haven't seen anything concrete there yet. Uh, They're also tied up with a major restaurant chain that uh, is interested in... um, locating here if the hotel goes in. And we're hoping that all of this, you know, will come to fruition. But it's all being 
kind of the catalyst for it all has been the uh, new pod industry here. Very briefly, Lance, you talked about the boom and bust cycle that Debec has already been familiar with. Is it possible that pot could be that as well? Uh, I think about eventually if other communities in Mesa County decide that they will allow recreational pot sales and you won't be the only game in town that uh, could a, could a boom go bust? I believe that is absolutely very possible. And I have advised uh, the board that I work for that they need to um, kind of make hay while the sun shines, so to speak, because once there are additional for sale facilities to the west, which we can assume will happen at some point, it will affect uh, the revenues we see from that, um, the sale of uh, marijuana here in the community. I honestly believe the sustainability of the entire industry in our area, as well as our revenue stream, is going to be from the grow facilities, because we do have a lot of room uh, to accommodate uh, both warehousing and um, growing facilities here in the community that can then ship that product out of here. And as other states possibly uh, legalize um, marijuana, our growers should be ideally set to uh, take advantage of that. Lance Stewart is town administrator of Debec. It's the only community in Mesa County with recreational marijuana shops and the ability, at least, to allow legally uh, grow operations. Up next... She made a pact with a friend that she was going to become a novelist, and she did. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Writing a book was always something Colleen Oaks wanted to do, but never got around to, until she made a New Year's resolution to write a novel, which she followed through on. Oaks, who lives in Broomfield, started writing books for and about women. Now she reimagines fairy tales. Her trilogy, Queen of Hearts, explores why the queen in Alice in Wonderland became so awful. HarperCollins recently bought the series, which was first published by an indie press, and Universal Pictures is interested in the stories as well. Colleen, congratulations and welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. So while writing was always a passion for you, I understand that you went a very different direction after you graduated college. You moved to St. Louis with your husband. And tell me about your former vocation. (laughs) Well, after I graduated college, um, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do like a lot of college graduates. So uh, I thought about what I recently enjoyed, and it was planning my wedding. And uh, I was really interested in the flowers. So I thought, oh, I'll be a florist just like that. And so I went through the phone book. Um, I called every florist. I got all the way to the S's before someone would even talk to me. Um, And I ended up working at a florist called Seeds as a grunt worker, basically. Interesting. So you just, you dove uh, head head first. It sounds like you've done that in many aspects of your life. Uh, Running a floral shop actually inspired your first book. It was a chick lit novel called Ellie in Bloom about a florist who had to design her ex-husband's wedding to his mistress. As I mentioned, you made this pact with a friend to write that book, and uh, it got picked up by an indie publishing company, Spark Press. Uh, then you switched from uh, chick lit, and that's the, the term for it, lest you think that I'm disparaging <laughs> yes, the genre. Yes, that's, that's the genre name. You switched from that to fantasy. Why fantasy? 
Um, you know, my husband is a huge nerd. Um, he has always been really into fantasy, fantasy books, fantasy shows. And he slowly, as our we were married, kind of sucked me into that culture. So I started reading more fantasy, watching more fantasy. Um, and it just really interested me. Uh, I was first told to write what you know. That's what they tell a lot of beginning writers. Yeah. Um, and so being a florist was something I knew. Um, but to be honest, I don't know that that was really the right genre for me to be writing in. Because when I started writing fantasy, it was like pulling on a pair of pajama pants and taking off a business suit. Like it was just so perfect and comfortable. It was just where I needed to be. It went from work to fun, I guess. Yes. It was a good use for my imagination. So where did the idea for your trilogy, Queen of Hearts, come from? And again, this is a reimagining of Alice in Wonderland. Um, you know, it. I hate the term lightning in a bottle, but it really was kind of just like it struck me. I was driving. I was going to meet a friend um, at California Pizza Kitchen. It's really an unglamorous story. Um, and I was driving and I don't I actually don't know why I was thinking of Alice in Wonderland. I don't know where it came from, but I thought to myself, oh, why is that queen so angry? And then I thought oh, someone should write a book about that. And then the next thought was I'm going to write a book about that. And by the time I got to California Pizza Kitchen, I was already thinking plot. And by the time my friend got there because she was late, I had plotted almost the entire story out on a napkin. I love how unglamorous that is at a California Pizza Kitchen. <laughs> it really was. It was very <laughs> unsexy. <laughs> I can see the pizza stains on the napkin as well. Uh, you certainly explore this uh, anger on, on the Queen's part in, in the saga for young adults. Um, I'm going to have you read an excerpt from the first volume, The Crown, 15-year-old Dinah, who is the future Queen of Hearts, has been summoned by her father into the Great Hall. Yes, so the entire court watched her walk up the aisle, lords and ladies of noble birth, their bright fashion a blot of color on the otherwise black-and-white marble floors. Dinah walked swiftly towards the throne, but the front of the Great Hall still seemed miles away. The different factions of cards all nodded their heads as Dinah passed, some saying princess under their breath. She heard a faint snicker and a whisper from a diamond card. Recard. She held her head high and straight as Harris had told her to do. Someday this will be my great hall, she told herself. All these cards will bow before me when I rule beside my father, and I will make it death by beheading to laugh or even look at me. Off with their heads. Off with their heads. Was her fav- fav- famous line. So Dinah starts to have more and more of these violent thoughts. She also has a father who seems disinterested in her, and a series of rather horrific events unfold. How much of her fate, you know, why the queen is so angry and and violent, comes from her nature, and how much do you think is from her nurture? I think it's a terrible combination of both. She has this kind of fury inside of her um, that she shares with her father, And also her father treats her terribly um, due to some secrets that unfold through the series. Uh, So she has both of those things kind of working against her, which kind of makes this rage rise inside of her. She calls it, you know, the black fury a lot or the red, the red rage that rises through her. Um, And she also is kind of quick to anger, has, a you know, quick temper. um, But also I think love denied has a lot to do with it, too. Love denied. Yes. Do you want to make her sympathetic? I do, yes. But I also think it's important to make a villain be a villain. Um, I think there isn't a, aren't a lot of good female villains out there that don't have a really sad story about why they're the way they are. I think sometimes it's okay to let women be bad. Villains are interesting, and villains should 
make bad choices sometimes, even if they do think they're the hero of their own story. So you look at other female villains and you think there's like too much sympathy, too much backstory? Yeah, I was um, somewhat disappointed in Maleficent. Um, She is an awesome villain and I was so looking forward to it. And they definitely toned down her story and just kind of made her a good character that just kind of was painted bad, whereas I wanted to have a character who did some some actual bad things to earn her title of villain. Is oh, this is I, Disney fans will probably hate me for this. Is that Frozen? That's Frozen. Um, Maleficent, but it is from Disney. It is from Disney. All right. What do you think Lewis Carroll would think of this? <laughs> oh gosh. Well, he was a very interesting person, and he's written um, very interesting books. Uh, I think there's a darkness that runs through Alice in Wonderland uh, that you pick up on as reading it as an adult. It's not something that maybe you you could pick up on, I guess, a little bit from the movies that we watch as children. But reading rereading the text as an adult before I wrote um, Queen of Hearts, I was struck at just how much darkness and politics um, ran through that book. And I think I would hope that he would... Um, be at least the very least amused by the Queen of Hearts story. And she's a great character, so I feel like she's someone who does deserve her own backstory. My producer tells me Maleficent is Sleeping Beauty. That's it's from Oh, that it's story. from Sleeping Beauty. I, okay. I, I ought to have known that. Um there are a lot of uh, talking animals in the original Alice in Wonderland. Yes. You don't have talking animals in your books. I do not. Um, when I first started writing, I kind of asked myself how far into this fantasy world was I was I willing to go? What At what level was I comfortable with the fantasy? And talking animals was where I was not comfortable. <laughs> um, but what was great was the opportunity that that provided to me to take these characters, um, these animals, and turn them into human characters with these animal tendencies. So the rabbit um, that's always says, you know, we're late, we're late, we're late, has become her guardian and her tutor who wears a checkered ascot and is always telling her we're late we're late we're late you know let's go let's go and he has a swinging pocket watch and cheshire turned into the king's advisor who's this very slithery intelligent kind of puppet master of the whole thing we're speaking with the colorado author colleen oaks and colleen the first two queen of hearts books are already out under spark press harper collins which bought the series recently plans to re-release the first book later this year uh, sounds like a pretty successful first few years as a novelist. And then, then you get a call from your publicist with more big news. Universal Pictures is interested in turning Queen of Hearts into a motion picture. Yes, but, I could not believe when I got the phone call. <laughs> um, how far are we away from seeing Queen of Hearts on the big screen, do you think? Um, I wish I had more answers. I feel like I'm kind of the last to know everything. Um, you know, I wasn't able to announce that there was um, a movie option for a really long time publicly. And I told all my friends and family, I'm not a great secret keeper. But uh, I actually saw on Twitter, um, someone had tagged me on Twitter and I went and it was like, oh, Queen of Hearts is a movie deal. And I was like, oh, great. You know, I guess I'll retweet it then. Um, so I, I'm pretty excited. I know it's in the screenwriting process right now. Um, the screenwriter is Grant Myers, and he wrote the screenplay for Maze Runner, which I thought was a really great adaptation from a young adult novel that probably was very difficult to adapt. So needless to say, I've been emailing with him, and I'm very excited for um, the direction it's taking. The notion of rewriting fairy tales, or, or I, not necessarily rewriting them, but coming up with backstories, uh, prequels in some regards— uh, is really intoxicating to me, and it makes me think that there are any number of other fairy tales you, fairy tales you might want to adapt. 
Oh, there are. Um, and, and, and they're a very popular genre right now. Um, there's a lot of retellings of Beauty and the Beast, Sleeping Beauty, Cinderella. Um, so the bad news is there's a limited amount of characters from classic fairy tales. Uh, the good news for me is I'm not interested in main characters. I'm interested in side characters like the Queen or Wendy Darling. Fascinating. And why is that, do you think? Um, I think side characters kind of have more of a story that you can unfold on your own rather than following the narrative arc of the original tales. Um, Queen I like because she's so angry. Uh, Wendy I like because she's the opposite of that. She's a polite girl from London um, and her politeness sort of carries her through the story. And I think that's a a character that we're not seeing a lot of right now is someone who's not a warrior. Wendy from Peter Pan, right? Yes. Well, thank you so much for being with us. And uh, again, congratulations on your success. Thank you so much. Broomfield fantasy author Colleen Oakes. As we said, HarperCollins recently bought her trilogy, Queen of Hearts, which could also become a film from Universal Pictures. You can read an excerpt from her newest fairy tale saga, Wendy Darling, at CPRnews.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.